everyone. I'm Gary Knoll. This is the Progressive Commentary Hour. Today, the issue is, are people who need help at the emotional level, at the psychiatric level, are they getting the help they deserve? Is it safe and effective? How many people are overdiagnosed, misdiagnosed, overmedicated, and then end up having the patient suffer the adverse side effects? Is there a chemical imbalance that can be proven by any scientific measure, blood workup, CAT scan, MRI? The answer is no. How many people now are suffering from some form of functional depression, meaning they can go to work, they seem all right, but they're either suffering from depression or anxiety? Needless to say, it's not difficult to understand that in today's climate with so many people being fired, so many people no longer feeling secure about their own health because of COVID. Think of what that's done to our mental well-being. My guest in this segment of the program is going to tell part of her own story. I'm going to read now, verbatim, some of Maria's own comments. I'm going to be looking off camera now to read this, and this is called Connecting the Dots. And uh, my toxic workplace made me, quote, mentally ill, by Maria Mengen Caro. Quote, with his finger pointed at me in an authoritative tone, as if to discipline an unruly child, Dr. Yazer yelled, you're mentally ill and will be mentally ill for the rest of your life. Vitamins don't cure mental illness. Stop wasting your money. I received this scolding just five minutes into my first appointment with my third psychiatrist in two years. Not long after being released from the hospital after yet another manic episode. He knew little more about me than my name, yet made snap judgments against me based solely upon the fact that other medical doctors already rubber stamped a psychiatric label on me. I had hoped that Dr. Yasser would be different and more open-minded towards a patient incorporating complementary therapies into medication management as I was doing. I had selected him as my new psychiatrist because he had a unique holistic practice that offered walk-in appointments along with day center featuring fitness equipment and a pool table. Dr. Yasser encouraged patients to meditate in front of large fish tanks, network with each other, and attend daily support groups he led. Obviously, that was not the case, but I'd come prepared very calmly. I explained that I had experienced a lot of side effects from psychiatric medications and gave him a printout from my pharmacist listing my prescription history and the many drugs to which I had adverse reactions. I told him I was my best, it was, uh, I felt my best option was to incorporate additional therapies to try and control reoccurring episodes of insomnia, mania, psychosis, and visual hallucinations. Psychiatric drugs alone were not working. I explained that I had recently started acupuncture and massage therapy treatments in an attempt to find relief from severe insomnia. I also told him about my first appointment with Dr. Charles Gant, MD, PhD, at the Holistic Health Center that had recently opened near me. 
Dr. Gant uses a functional medicine approach to optimize his patients' treatment by testing them for metabolic infections, immune, allergic, nutritional, toxicological, and other risk factors. I then informed Dr. Yasser that my work history included long-term exposure to hazardous chemicals that results of lab tests run by Dr. Gant had revealed high levels of various neurotoxins in my body, including past exposure to lead via a hair analysis. And then it goes on from there to talk about how he rejected all this, saying there was no scientific merit at all to hair analysis and heavy metals because heavy metals had nothing to do with mental illness. In effect, every single positive option that she had researched and had experienced, he was negating. Now, did she have an actual mental illness? Or was she suffering, as many do, from environmental degradation and toxicological uh, systems in in the environment? For example, we know from many uh, studies, peer-reviewed studies, that 5G, 4G, 3, 2, and 1G electromagnetic pulses off your cell phone computers can cause electrical imbalance in your body, leading to what some might call psychiatric disorders. We also know that nutrient deficiencies can do the same. Heavy metal toxicity can do the same. What if you have some combination? That's just the lead-in to show you what this person has gone through. Nice to have you with us today, Maria. Thank you, Gary. Would you tell us your story, how you ended up being sent from psychiatrist to psychiatrist in hospital, out of hospital, and was there any help in all of this, or did their model of behavior modification through drugs work, or did it cause you to become even more seriously out of balance? Yes, so I was 33 years old at the time I experienced an acute manic episode. I was in great physical shape, very healthy, very well-adjusted in life. My symptoms happened acutely, and my family recognized that I was obviously in an altered state. I had never even been drunk in my life. My sister researched which hospital to go to, and it was recommended to go to a state hospital because they were the experts. My family knew I had worked around chemicals. It was obvious because anyone who had visited me in the plant could smell it immediately. My mother recognized when I started working there, the smell on your clothing and your hair, but it didn't bother me. I, you just, people who work in it become accustomed to it. And the change in my mental status was obvious. My sister begged the doctors at the state hospital to check me for chemical poisoning. And they looked at her and said, is there any family history of mental illness? 20 years prior, she thought my father had suffered depression. She said that was part of the family history and that was it, they rubber stamped the label of manic depressive with psychotic disorders. That was in 1996. I was in an altered mental state where I felt like I was receiving messages from God. I was 
I had never been drunk in my life or experienced any kind of a high like that. I lived a very clean life. I never even walked in bars with exposure to cigarettes. It was all work-related. And at the same time, I did also experience a root canal and a back tooth, which I feel may have also played a part in it, the bacteria from It was a very bad root canal. And at the hospital, I had no choice but to sign the papers and go into the psychiatric ward. They gave me very strong sedative medications. I had very severe insomnia. The medications knocked me out. I did appreciate the sleep that I got from the medications because the mania was so extreme, I was experiencing visual hallucinations. And so the drugs to settle me down did help. And while I was there, I was still in a manic high, and I met the first person I ever met, diagnosed with bipolar disorder, very sweet woman, cuts up and down her arms, had a horrific childhood abuse that is unimaginable. I felt so much compassion for her and all the other patients, and I was able to connect with them. I really felt that this was a calling for me. I was never told I had a psychiatric diagnosis or what it was, but then another patient after three days told me I thought I was leaving after three days, like that was the agreement I entered into. She told me, oh no, they can keep you here for as long as you want. That's when reality set in, and I'm like, I have bills to pay. I have car payments and mortgage payments. I can't sit here for three, you know, a month. Or, And I asked the doctor, how do I get out of here? And he said, well, you can write a letter. And if we feel, it's, I had never, I mean, like, I'm a prisoner here. I mean, no access to my comfortable bed and home. I'm sleeping on a, you know, crunchy pillow, plastic pillow covers, uncomfortable bed. I'm like, I wanted to go home. And they said, you could write a letter to get out. And even though my altered state, I just pulled myself together and focused. And I was like, this is going to be the best darn letter I ever wrote. And I wrote a letter stating that the medications helped me. I can go home now. Um, And I was released with medications that were very costly. $250 for my first prescription. And within one week of being on these medications, uh, I suffered um, severe Parkinson's-like syndrome. I couldn't even get out of bed. It hit me like a ton of bricks. And all of a sudden, I'm like, what's wrong with me? That's when someone told me, well, my husband said, take more time off from work. I needed to fill out forms for work, and the doctor needed to fill it out. And on the form, he wrote, manic depressive with psychotic features. That was the first time I learned my diagnosis. And I was so embarrassed that I could not turn this form into work and let everyone know. I went to the psychiatrist and said, and tears. I'm like, I cannot turn this in. And so he got out, white out. And he changed it to confusion, delirium, a much nicer form. And that's what I turned into work. And I'm like, I don't have this because the people I met 
they had horrible lives. I, there's no way I have the same disorder as the people I met who all told me their stories and it broke my heart. I'm like, how can this be? And a family member who had taken a college course in abnormal psychology, that's where you learn about the DSM, showed me their textbook and said, look it. And it was the description of everything I went through. And there was a picture of a three-year-old child, her mother, her grandmother, and her great-grandmother. And it said all four of them had bipolar disorder, and it's a hereditary illness. And it broke my heart because I'm like, I have this? How can it be? And so what was offered to me was drug therapy and seeing a therapist. And I was like, I don't need a counselor. I'm just going to do the drugs. I put all of my faith into finding the right drug. And before I went back to work, I asked my psychopharmacologist, is there any way possible my mother and father are right that my illness is caused by the chemicals I worked around? And he said, no, it's you have a hereditary illness. And that's what I accepted. And I followed, because I didn't want to experience that again, I followed to the T the recommendations of the drugs. And I was able to go back to work. The only drug that stabilized was lithium. And I was able to stabilize enough to go back into work. And it was our slow period. And I was able to work in a different area. And I was able to be okay at my job. I had suffered a decline in my mental abilities, my skills. And then when we got busy, I worked in my regular area and I could no longer perform the work that I used to do. My quality level went down and I just, I, one doctor told me that if I had had an MRI in the beginning, he was most certain it would have shown brain damage that got reversed later on after I went through alternative therapies. But at that point, I felt, well, I'm crazy. I must be stupid, too. It must go hand in hand. And I was embarrassed and ashamed. I, I wanted to hide my illness. I didn't want to talk about it with anyone. And I was embarrassed going to a psychiatrist. I felt so ashamed of it. And when we got busy again at work, the chemical exposure got higher again. And then in the fall, I ended up having another manic episode. But it felt so real. I mean, you can't distinguish between, and I tried to control it, but I could not. Ended up with a second manic episode, same thing. This time went on stronger medications. Went back to work, was our slow period, got busy again, ended up in the psych ward. And I, these cycling in and out and out, I'm like, I have to find, I'm at my wit's end here. And so I, after the third one, I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to be open and start talking about this with people. I want answers. And I started going to support groups and wherever I could find information. And I thought, you know, when I'm in a psych ward, I connect really well with people. I have great people skills. I feel comfortable at this. Maybe my future career is that of a social worker or a therapist. So I thought, you know what? I'm working full time. I'm going to start taking night courses. And the first one I signed up for was a course in abnormal psychology because I wanted to learn about my own illness. And I don't understand 
I have taken basic psychology in college, but I wanted more in-depth learning. So I signed up for a night course in abnormal psychology. And that's what really opened, started to open my mind towards the different perspectives and not understand, because I put all my faith in just the drugs. That was the smartest person. I put my trust in my psychiatrist. But it kept failing and failing. And then uh, the choice was Zyproxa. And I gained 80 pounds in six months on this drug. And I was tried so hard to pass it. I tape recorded every class, every um, class, played it over and over. I rewrote my notes, used a highlighter. I wanted to absorb as much as possible. Got an A on the first exam, B on the second one, and the final I couldn't even complete. But the professor was so kind, he gave me an A anyways. But it was an opportunity to learn about the DSM and about the labeling process. And I was like, wait a second, you know, what's going on here? Why are there so many different perspectives? And why isn't everyone collaborating together? And to make a long story short, just doors opened up and I got to Dr. Gant and started all kinds of alternative therapies. Anything I could learn about and expand on, that's what I did. And what has been the results? The results were I was able to taper off all medications, get back to my normal life, and take up a passion for advocacy for others. Because I know that I was very blessed that I had the opportunity to seek out and pay for alternative therapies that are not available to others. I had the skills to be able to go to the medical library, have help with the medical librarians, do buy a Mosby Medical Dictionary and look things up. Back then, the internet was in its infancy. I pulled out studies with the help of the medical librarians um, to help support my workers' comp case. And I built a workers' comp case without the help of an attorney. And I pursued that and eventually found an attorney and got the depositions I needed, was given a small settlement, but enough that it was, it satisfied me that the label of bipolar, schizophrenic was pushed to the side and the correct diagnosis of toxic encephalopathy was replaced. So today, are you living a normal life with normal manageable yes. emotions? So you a were right, life. Dr. Gant was right, and all previous three psychiatrists were wrong, the drugging was wrong. Is that accurate or inaccurate? The mistake they made, the mistake I made, was not listening to my mother, not seeking out Dr. Gant, who was a, lived a mile away from my house. And my sister even told me, you know, find an orthomolecular doctor. And I'm like, what's that? I was confused by the whole situation, so the mistake was made. The flaw in the psychiatry is the labeling process. They use a Chinese menu approach. So just like uh, the book Brain on Fire, she does a very, the author does a very nice talk, and she describes her symptoms and how, according to the DSM, 
she could have been she could have been classified as schizophrenic. Just like that textbook, that was a textbook case of bipolar disorder. But read further in that textbook, and there's substance-induced psychosis. That was the correct diagnosis. So the DSM, uh, hundreds of different diagnoses, they're rubber stamping bipolar schizophrenia. Yes, there is no test for bipolar disorder or schizophrenia. There's no test for those. So there's no test to determine somebody has a mental illness, but there are tests to determine they do not have a mental illness. They have an underlying medical conditioning causing them to experience an altered state. But those diagnoses are also in the DSM. So technically, according to psychiatry, you still have a mental disorder. It's just not what people conceive of as a mental illness. If you were to get on stage tomorrow in the U.S. Congress and you were to say our entire mental health field is not ending up with positive results, putting people frequently on drugs for life, misdiagnosing them, and not looking at other alternative or very reasonable causes from things in the environment, do you think that the members of Congress would change their positions and put pressure upon the psychiatric community or the pharmaceutical community? Or do you believe it's just going to be business as usual? Yes, um, that's a very interesting question and absolutely 100%. And I believe that the law is already there, that individuals in our mental health system, according to a federal court decision, Wyatt versus, excuse my memory lapse, um, begins with an S, but individuals and even state laws Individuals in our mental health system have the constitutional right to treatments that are afford them the best results, and they are being deprived that because of the way they label people with. And part of the problem, a large part of the problem, is the pro-psychiatry agenda of the National Institute on Mental Illness that families are educated to believe. The first NAMI conference I went to, I had to walk out the lies that are being told, the misinformation. So to our lawmakers, to families, um, I've saved an article, an advertisement from Naples, Florida. It used to be in every Sunday paper. Babies behind bars. This is what happens to untreated mental illness. This is from NAMI. And the, I mean, this is what they train people to believe. And even our uh, companies like Cerebral, startup companies making millions by using, the strongest form of advertisement is word of mouth. And if we can use word of mouth, and that's what, the drug companies through NAMI have done that they have parents educating each other. People like author Pete Early who say they believe drugs are the way and they are convinced that that works and they're not looking for best practice standards of care. If you use best practice standards of care, more people 
would be diagnosed with an underlying medical condition and less people would be labeled mentally ill. Thank you very much for taking this time to share with our audience. We appreciate it. And for you being a major advocate for alternative approaches. My guest, Maria, is it uh, Magna Caro? Mangicaro, yes. Mangicaro. Back in a moment with our next guest. Please stay with us. And now to my guest, Roxanne Stewart Johnson. Nice to have you with us today, Roxanne. Hi, hi, Gary. Nice to be with you. Roxanne, you have a very interesting story. We're trying to better understand what it's like to be affected by the protocols offered within our national mental health system. That means psychiatry, psychology, institutionalization, the different techniques, the drugs, the SSRIs, the, uh, the electropulsive therapy, and its entire history. And yet, rare is the situation of someone who has an opportunity to tell their story to the American public. I've yet to see any of the major platforms, like 60 Minutes 2020, give an in-depth and honest, non-political look and are we helping people? Or are we hurting them? Because the millions, and I mean millions of people who've been affected by that system, think of all the people just with COVID who were ending up depressed, suicidal, taking their own lives, or got onto some drug like fentanyl, or the opiates before that, or even alcohol killed over a million Americans during COVID. None of that is discussed. So would you take us on your journey of how you ended up interfacing with the mental health field, what happened to you, and what lessons have been learned, and whether or not you believe that this, the system itself is capable of any positive change since the pharmaceutical industry and the psychiatric hospitals have so much power and so much wealth that they make off diagnosing and treating people. The form is yours. Yeah, well, thanks so much, Gary. Um, how I um, ended up interfacing with the psychiatric system is I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder in my early 20s, around age uh, 24, 23, and I had my first psychotic episode when I was doing my master's in Rhode Island back in uh, 2005. And um, that psychotic episode led me to be hospitalized and I was given the, diagnose, the diagnosis of bipolar, um, which to me, I, I was happy that there was some explanation for what I was going through. Um, but what I did not know was and was not warned about was the just the plethora of side effects associated with these drugs. I was put on an antipsychotic and a mood stabilizer. Um, and this, I, I was basically turned chemically into a zombie. And I had no idea that these were um, side effects associated with antipsychotics or th that would be plaguing me for basically the rest of the my life being diagnosed as by having bipolar disorder. So uh, first, 
the side effects, sedation, over sedation, cognitive dulling, being a zombie, and of course, weight gain, which led to a number of physical health issues, right? Um, high blood pressure, um, high blood sugar, a, a lot of things that plagued me. And the thing is that I was never warned um, about these side effects. And when you're not warned um, about you know, things like that, um, that's really violating your right to informed consent. So I was taking these drugs and I never really was given the option of giving my informed consent. I was just told you have bipolar disorder. These are the drugs you need to take for them and that you need to be on these for the rest of your life. Right. And only later on when, um, my ex-husband, he was a pharmacist. So uh, when we were dating, he was telling me about all the side effects associated with these drugs, which I had no clue about, right? So um, then learning about that the weight gain was caused from the antipsychotics, my cognitive dulling, my uh, inability to even be able to finish school, right? Because I wanted to do my master's, but my brain just was not at the same functioning level. I was high functioning before, um, obviously getting a, a, a scholarship to do my master's at Rhode Island School of Design, right? And then all of a sudden, I'm just on my parents' couch watching TV, gaining weight, just being very low functioning and having a very low quality of life. So that's the first thing that really... Um, hit me, although I didn't know that these things were being caused by these psychiatric drugs, right? So I just thought, okay, this is my life now. I don't know why I'm like this. Maybe it's because I'm bipolar. But later on learning that the reason I was having such a poor quality of life, being so low functional um, cognitively, was because of the dulling effects of these antipsychotics and mood stabilizers. Give us some understanding of what it's like. What, what's going on behaviorally in a normal day? Sure, sure. Well, uh, my mom was the one who noticed it first. She was like, Roxanne, I, I haven't heard you laugh. You don't talk that much anymore. I mean, it was almost like, you know, when you're um, uh, a person, because my grandmother suffered from um, Alzheimer's. The first thing she stopped doing was talking a lot. Um, she wasn't talking so and being very quiet, not mu having much to say and just kind of zoning out. And that's basically what happened to me. Like my whole personality changed because before I was a, a bubbly, high functioning, you know, I was very, doing very well academically, um, very active in school, president of the International Students Club, you know, making dean's list every uh, semester. And then all of a sudden I'm just you know, my personality was gone, right? I didn't say much. I didn't talk much, didn't laugh much, had, you know, a sense of humor, but that was gone. So uh, my mom was the first person to realize, like, where's where's my daughter? I'm not quite sure what's going on here. Why, why is it that she's not talking or anything like that? And I just had no interest. And I was very depressed as well. When they say that you're going to have to be on something for the rest of your life, what physical proof, what blood chemistries or CAT scans or MRIs, what could they actually show you 
to prove their point that you were bipolar and therefore your body necessitated these SSRIs, these selective serotonin reuptake inhibiting drugs or whatever drugs they gave you? Yeah, well, nothing really. I mean, when I was first diagnosed and I had that first psychotic experience in Rhode Island, they did do like uh, MRIs, they did do a CAT scan. Um, they did a lot of tests, but they really didn't find anything. So I think, you know, based on just behavior alone, um, they came up with a diagnosis of bipolar disorder. That's really all they have to go on is just behavior. And um, I'm not even sure they really did a thorough history. I just know that I was, I, I, I woke up in Butler Institute in Rhode Island uh, Butler Hospital in Rhode Island, and I was told, you have bipolar disorder. And, you know, um, being somebody who is just, I've tr trusted the medical um, institution before, so I really didn't doubt what they were saying. I, I just thought, okay, if that's what they say I have, that's what I have. But I never really questioned anything, and I never questioned the drugs. But, of course, I was never told, yeah, what these drugs would do. Roxanne, at any point, did you decide to look into the side effects of these drugs, to look into the background on is bipolar in and of itself a legitimate diagnosis? Does it actually exist in reality? Because we know that there is no blood chemistry, there's no test in the world ever that has been able to determine that a person has a brain chemical imbalance. In fact, that has actually been disputed now in the largest study ever done. But did you take it upon yourself to start looking to see whether or not what they were doing was efficacious and safe? Definitely, definitely. Um, once I had met my ex-husband and he started talking to me about the drugs and he said he would never take these drugs. It's so funny. Like he's a pharmacist and he's like, I would never take these drugs because of all the associated side effects, right? So, uh, and he actually, cause he was actually going to school at the time. Um, he was going to university at the time when we were dating. So he actually brought his, um, his notes home and the, the PowerPoint presentations from his lecturers. And he started showing me, um, one, the risk factors for a mental illness and two, the side effects associated with the drugs. And um, I realized that, well, one, he was the one who kind of showed me that these drugs are not safe for long term, right? They might be safe for, um, you know, dealing with acute psychotic episodes, but they're really not safe for you to be on, there, uh, on them for 10, 20 years, as most people are, right? Also, um, the efficacy of the drugs, they, they lose effect over time. Right. So a lot of people who are diagnosed with things like bipolar or schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder. Right. They will have to switch up their drugs every so often because the drugs, um, they lose they lose their effects over time. Your body will naturally build up um, a tolerance for them. And uh, so so for me, that was a huge thing, like learning that these drugs are not safe. A pharmacist himself telling me that he would never take these drugs, right? And also that they're not safe for the long term. Now, whether bipolar disorder is 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 truly um, a, a true diagnosis or not, I can't say for sure. I know that I've definitely suffered from highs and lows. I've definitely suffered from extreme psychotic thoughts. 
um, without medical intervention. I, I definitely have. Um, whether it's caused from a chemical imbalance or it's caused from trauma, that's another question because um, I, I experienced trauma as a child. I experienced childhood sexual abuse, right? So those are things that are associated, even studies dealing with trauma such as childhood sexual abuse can show that later on as an adult, you can suffer from things like um, substance abuse, you can suffer from psychotic disorders and mood disorders and depression. So whether that's caused from a chemical imbalance or it's caused from the brain's, um, the brain's response to trauma, that's a, that's a better question. So yeah, so that's what I would say about that. Did you, did you ever get independent counseling by a psychologist, a humanist psychologist, who would explain to you that virtually every person goes through highs and lows. It's just how we have been conditioned to adapt to those highs and lows. Most people today are functionally able to work, yet if you looked inside every person's conscious and you asked them, are you happy today? Some days they're happier, other days they're not. Sometimes they'll go for weeks, even months, feeling lonely, depressed. What happens after a person has lost their job? or relationship, uh, what happens when a person loses a loved one or a friend. All of us go through this. There is no one who is living a completely happy life all the time. And then we all go through, at different times, different forms of panic, depending upon, again, our notion of security. Now, as a straight-A student, as someone who is a high-level achiever, that in and of itself has been shown to cause a great deal of emotional reactions in students at some of your best universities. In fact, at Harvard and, and Yale and Princeton, Stanford, University of Chicago, University of Pennsylvania, some of the better reputation schools, the students who come in as valedictorians, as straight-A students, they suddenly, for the first time, in a smaller environment than what they grew up in, they're, they're competing with 5,000 other students who are four-point you know, grades and, and are under stresses. Now they're competing about with each other. Would you wish I was the best person in my hometown, in my school, and I was valedictorian, president of my class, et cetera, et cetera. But now I'm here at Harvard, and everyone's the same, and there's kids here who seem to thrive on competition, and now you're looking at yourself from a different perspective, and that can create anxiety. It can create self-doubt. And then you start asking yourself, well, how well will I do when there's this much competition? These are thoughts that everyone who's a high-level achiever in anything, not just academia, in sports, you know, one day you get the gold medal in whatever athletic you know, sport. And then you realize when you go from that junior high, high school to a college where you've got a lot of high-level achievers and successful people, and then you go into the real world, then you just are flooded with a level of uh, outstanding performances, and where do you stand? So this is something that's never discussed about the role of competition, the role of overachieving, the role of what we have to sacrifice to be that high-level achiever. Nobody becomes a straight-A student without studying, without quality introspection and learning and discipline and focus. And then the more you do, 
the more you will achieve. But then what happens when you start realizing there's a side effect? Just one last thought. I came up with a concept recently that I shared with this audience, and it was called failing at success. And then you maladapt to the need to super adapt. So in your effort of climbing that ladder, staying focused, getting to the next tier, getting people to acknowledge you, getting getting to become more relevant. Ah, such and such, she's brilliant. Oh, he's he's the top of his class. And then we even go into the class structure. Who who walks the red carpets of life in any 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 field? You know, and then they look around. How how confident they are they are living a balanced life? The more time you put into succeeding, the less time you have for balancing out your friendships, your relationships, quality time with self, hobbies, uh, downtime without feeling anxious. So I believe, this is my own personal and subjective belief, that the more we try to succeed at something, we will achieve it only to fail at life. Then comes all of the burdens of the self-feeling successful on the outside, empty on the inside. That, that gnawing sense that there should be more. Then the panic attacks. Then the mood swings. Your thoughts, please. And do you feel any of that is relevant to your story? Um, I think so. I think that like um, situations and circumstances definitely influence our mental health. You know, um, and I, I do believe in the effects of trauma. I mean, we know that trauma has a real effect on the brain when uh, we, we, we notice that ve um, veterans who come home from a war zone, right, are suffering from PTSD, right? They're suffering from nightmares or flashbacks and things like that. So I think that situations, um, traumatic situations, emotionally difficult situations, um, do have an effect on how we process our emotions. And um, I definitely am more keen to believe in that than just a natural imbalance of chemicals in the brain. I mean, even now, I mean, I remember I was in hospital and the doctor that was evaluating me was like, we don't really even know how these brain chemicals work. So there's a bit of mystery. I mean, they're going on some kind of hypothesis that it's brain chemistry. Um, but I'm, I'm more likely to believe that the circumstances we face in life, right? Trauma, um, you know, abuse, or um, just circumstances that are difficult to deal with, whether it's overachieving or being in a situation where you're, you're, question, you're questioning your whole identity. Um, those things really do affect mental health and can make your mind go through an entire breakdown, you know, which is certainly what I experienced when I, I was doing my master's for the first time at Rhode Island. So um, I, do, I do believe that circumstances and situations and trauma definitely do affect our mental health. And it, it's, it's not necessarily easy, easily fixed by a magic bullet or a special pill, you know, or, or some kind of brain chemistry. How long were you on the meds? Well, actually, I'm still on meds. I'm still on um, meds today, but I'm on a lot less meds. So when I was first diagnosed back in 2005, I was about 23, turning 24. 
Um, I was on a very, oh my gosh, risperidone is an antipsychotic and Depakine or, or sodium valproate is, a, is a, um, a mood stabilizer. It's actually an anticonvulsant used in epilepsy, right? So it really just flattened out my brain. Um, so I was on those for a very long time because, because I had no idea that those drugs were contributing to my depression, my low cognitive function and my weight gain. So I had no clue that my low quality of life was linked to these drugs. Once I found out, um, like about 2010, um, I was introduced to a religious group that really looked at the whole uh, Seventh-day Adventists, they really look at um, how clinical medicine of today, modern clinical medicine, really does not treat problems. They really treat symptoms. So the source of the problem is not so much treated so much as the symptoms. And once I kind of discovered more natural means of um, like treating your own mental health, you know, diet, exercise, sunshine, you know, vitamin D, things like that, water. Um, I started really looking at like in about 2010, realizing that these, these medications for me were pretty toxic at the amount that I was on and what I was on, right? So um, I did try natural um, therapies uh, for a time and coming off all the medication. Um, it worked for a time, but I did find that I did have uh, continue to suffer from psychotic episodes. So um, for me, um, I, I suffer from insomnia. So I know that there are natural ways of treating insomnia without going to antipsychotics. But for me right now, um, antipsychotic, an antipsychotic is what I'm on, but I'm on a very minimal dose um, that just helps me to sleep. And then, you know, because I'm on way less medication, which all the doctors in Jamaica were telling me that's impossible for you to function on su such little medication. But here I am um, today, able to do my master's, able to look after my children, and I'm not nearly at, on as much medication as I was on. So I am still on an antipsychotic, but um, yeah, just a huge ways away from what I was before. Are you familiar with the work of Dr. Peter Bregan? I am, yes. Because he has helped a lot of people, tens of thousands of people get off their, safely get off their psychiatric meds, which cannot be done just cold turkey. It takes time and you have to rebalance, literally rebalance your chemistry, body chemistry, um, as you're getting off. Also, did your ex-husband, the chemist, ever show you that the number one side effect of antidepressant medication is depression, and the number one side effect of anti-anxiety medication is anxiety? You know what? Um, he did point out, like, one of the things he did say was that um, he, he told me about paradoxical side effects, right? So, um, so meaning that the the... The symptom that these drugs are supposed to treat, they can actually cause, it's called a, a, a paradoxical side effect. For example, um, I would get vivid hallucinations when I was on antipsychotics, particularly Risperdal, vivid hallucinations. And he said, actually, that's a paradoxical side effect. Because even though 
um, I've never experienced hallucinations um, on my own. Just any um, any natural psychotic episode that I've had that was not drug induced, um, I've never hallucinated. It's more just strange perception. But with these antipsychotics, I would get vivid hallucinations. And he told me, guess what? That's a paradoxical side effect. It's supposed to stop you from hallucinating, but it can actually cause you to hallucinate. And um, with all the sedative properties of antipsychotics, that over sedation, I learned later, could cause depression. And I know, know being very deeply depressed um, when I was on antipsychotics and when I was on mood stabilizers like sodium valproate. So that's something I, I definitely learned with my ex-husband. Yeah. A final thought here. About five years ago, there was a meeting at the World Psychiatric Association New York City, and it was at the Javis Center. <clears throat> we had a demonstration outside, and I was dressed in a business suit, and I went over, and because they must have thought I was one of the psychiatrists, I had no problem getting in. And then I would ask psychiatrists, can you prove with any scientific peer review evidence that any any mental disorder that's in your diagnostic statistical manual of psychiatry is real in its cause. You say it's a chemical imbalance of the brain. Can you prove that? Every single one said, no, there is no proof. It's very subjective. Then I brought to their attention a Harvard study showing that a placebo, a sugar pill, worked just as well as, as Prozac. And Prozac has all these terrible side effects. And a lot of kids have committed suicide while on Prozac. So I said, well, if you have a choice of a sugar pill helping a person and it's equal to Prozac, why not just give a sugar pill? Why not give what we call the placebo effect? And uh, they wouldn't do that. Nothing has changed. Not a single thing. Even after the largest study ever done, most complete study is completely debunked the chemical brain imbalance theory, it's still being promoted out there in television commercials. And also, we, there was a person who was completely healthy, went into 12 different psychiatrists' offices, leading psychiatrists, within the shortest time was uh, a little over four minutes to seven and a half minutes, they were given a diagnosis and given a prescription. And every one of the psychiatrists gave a different prescription. So later, when we met those people and we asked them, here you took only a few minutes to diagnose a person, gave them a very toxic drug, and this is a completely normal person. They said, well, it's all subjective, anyhow. So I just want to share that with you for the future. What lessons do you believe now that you have learned from your experience that tens of millions of other people possibly have not learned, you might be able to give them some help so they could get out of that cycle. Well, what I've learned, I think the most important principle I've learned is a principle of informed 
consent right you need to know what you're consenting to when you go in let, let's say you're, you're you're suffering from a little bit of depression and you go in and uh to a psychiatrist these these people should be able to inform you about the drug they should be able to afford to, to inform you about the dangers um the risks the side effects you know do you fall into any high risk um, categories. Actually, I spoke with a human rights lawyer here in Toronto, and she deals with people, um, you know, um, contesting forced treatment at the Consent and Capacity Board. And um, she said a lot of her clients who were black actually died from many of the side effects because um, black people were known to have higher rates of cardiovascular disease, higher rates of obesity, higher rates of things like blood sugar levels. And, you know, if we are, you know, being drugged, you know, and, and nobody is taking the time to say, hey, you know, guess what? These are risks associated with these drugs. They can cause uh, cardiovascular disease, they can cause hypertension, hyperglycemia, right? They can cause all these side effects. So we really need to inform these patients that guess what? You know, this drug could cause this and do you fit into any high risk um, health categories, right? But none of this is being done. Um, people are being prescribed these drugs. They are not being told, you know, doctors are not even so much as reading the product monograph that is provided with every drug that they prescribe. The product monograph is made, is, is, a, is a pamphlet that's just um, published by the, the, psych, um, the, um, the psychiatric, sorry, the, the pharmaceutical companies. They provide these product monographs. So they're, they are getting themselves out of legal trouble. They're basically saying, hey, we have printed all the dangers on the product monograph, right? So you know what you're getting yourself into. Don't come and sue us. But basically, none of the doctors are reading these product monographs when they're warning that, guess what? This can cause hyperglycemia, hypertension, cardiovascular disease, blood clots, you know, pulmonary embolisms, the, these kind of things. This is what the health risk is, right? So if these doctors are not reading these product monographs and the patients don't even know about product monographs, right? Why would they? They're not the ones prescribing drugs, right? If you're prescribing a drug, you should at least be reading the product monograph, but they're not doing that. And so a lot of patients, their right to inform consent is being violated. They do not know what they're taking. They do not know what the risks are. They don't know how this is even going to affect them, right? So when they go on later on and gain weight and do all these things, and, and these drugs are shown to shorten your lifespan by at least 20 years, right? Because, you know, when you're, when you're overweight, when you have all these health conditions, you're not gonna live much further than 50 or 60, right? But their right to inform consent, right? And informed consent also means, listen, are there any alternatives to these medications? Is there anything else that I could do that's more holistic, that's less invasive, and has less side effects, like diet and exercise, right? Like, like getting out of toxic, um, emotionally abusive or traumatic circumstances, getting counseling, you know, those kind of things. That's a part of informed consent. So informed consent is the most important principle I've learned, you know, informing your patient 
about what they're really getting themselves into. So that's what I've learned. Thank you very much. My guest, Roxanne Stewart Johnson. You're making a remarkable journey of healing for yourself. My hope is that this will inspire many other people to realize they have to be empowered. And you are correct. Informed consent is essential. Thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm Gary Knoll. Thank you all for watching and listening and have a nice day.